Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. It's a really big case that we're talking about today. Let's get started. What can you tell me about it? We are. And I guess before I start, I just want to say one thing. I know that what we talk about is super serious. And I hope that our audience knows that we appreciate how serious it is, even though uh, sometimes we joke around. I think that it's really important to be able to have a conversation and not have it be incredibly sad and heavy because I don't think you necessarily listen and understand and appreciate the lessons that you can take away when you're so sad. And I want people to be empowered by these conversations. And so even though we sometimes joke around, we are so serious about the importance of learning these lessons that we can all learn. So with that, let me start today. Today, we're in a movie theater and we're about to watch a premiere of a Batman movie when a 24-year-old begins shooting from beside the big screen. He has a shotgun, a rifle, and a handgun with him. And he kills 12 people and he wounds 58. So a lot of people wounded. One of the dead is a six-year-old girl. This is, as it turns out to be, just one of the saddest parts about what turns out to be a very multifaceted and extraordinary day full of sorrow but also uh, bravery and some really good, important things that should never be forgotten. A six years old, unbelievably tragic, along with the rest of the loss of life there. And I know I've sat in many a movie theater, like I'm sure so many of our listeners have. And I'm really interested to see those lessons that we can take away from, like you say, an extraordinarily tragic event of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, really. This episode, we've also got raw footage from the case to share, which is unusual, isn't it? It is. A lot of times I've seen horrible and heard horrible things in my job as a longtime FBI agent, even as a prosecutor when I was a prosecutor in Chicago. So often, none of that is is necessarily shared with the public for two reasons. One, it's gratuitous violence. We never want to share gratuitous violence if we can avoid it. And two, in law enforcement and as prosecutors, you don't want to re-victimize people who are engaged, who are survivors, the family members who might be involved. And you don't want to have anybody feel like they're reliving it. PTSD is very real, as we know, post-traumatic stress. And and this is difficult for a lot of people to hear sometimes. But I think in this case, I wanted to bring a little bit of the reality of what these situations can be like, the noise and the chaos and things like that. And I think this gives us a unique opportunity for that. And one of the reasons we have a live shooter who then faces trial and the materials are released as part of trial. Well, let's get right to it because there is a lot to cover. So take it away. This incident at a movie theater occurs in July of 2012. As I said, we have a 24-year-old man who bought a movie ticket, entered the movie theater, 
It's a Century 16 movie theater, entered theater number nine, which is relevant in this movie complex in Aurora, Colorado. It's not far from the state capital of Denver. Uh, the man walks down the steps of the stadium-style theater and then out the emergency exit a short time later. They have those emergency exits often on either sides of the big screen. He uses a plastic clip to block the door open, and he walks to his car that he's pre-staged behind the building. He pulls out weapons and some other things, and he returns about 15 minutes later, re-entering through the same door as the movie has started. He's wearing a gas mask. He immediately tosses a canister of the tear gas, like a CS spray, into the theater. And he raises his shotgun and he fires off six rounds of the shotgun. And this is pellet ammunition, so it sprays all over. And then he switches to a semi-automatic weapon that he's carrying with him, an AR-15 style weapon, and discharges about 65 rounds before it jams. And then he picks up his handgun and he shoots off another five rounds. And then he turns around and leaves the theater. He was actually often very close to the people in the theater because how close the seats Mm. are actually to that opening front screen. And in like at least one case, he stepped up the aisle somewhat looking and seeing who he could shoot to before he left. Terrifying. After he steps out that deck door, minutes later, police are responding. They encounter him behind the theater, standing by his car. He didn't resist arrest. He was arrested at the time. And the, the entire shooting took about two and a half minutes responding officers, as quick as they got there, did not even hear any shots being fired. We know that many of the details that come out in the 911 tapes that were released, many played at the subject's trial where he was actually convicted three years later, 12 consecutive life sentences, and actually sentenced to another 3,000 plus years of prison. So he's not getting out of prison real soon. Wow, 3,000 3, years. It's a process. That's, so, so you, That's incredible. That just blows my mind. It's not super common, but I'll tell you, legal actions, of course, are a process, and every charge has its own sentence, and sometimes the sentences are consecutive, and sometimes the sentences are not, so they're extended one on top of the other. And in this case, he had so many people who were injured, 58 wounded, 60, I believe, by the fo- final total, and injured and killed, and so many charges that were engaged and involved that the judges just stacked them on top of each other. So it is a little unusual to hear anything that has thousands when it involves years. And maybe that's also because a lot of the other cases we've done, the shooter hasn't even got to trial. Maybe it's more common. I, I just haven't come across it before. So there's a lot to process in there. In the other cases that we've looked at, it's often not as easy to place yourself in the moment and really trying to visualize what's going on. But because it's a movie theater, it's something that I can easily sit myself in. You can feel the dark, the rustling of the popcorn, the proximity to the aisle. I want to feel like that the reason that it happened was that there was other factors in play and it wasn't just a random thing that happened. Did this happen in a really bad neighborhood? No, actually, that's why I picked this shooting. I try to only pick out incidents for us to talk about that I think the audience will be able to relate to and engage with and understand and appreciate that I'm not just looking for the worst and the most horrible and and I'm trying to look for things that we can empower us. But in this case, I picked this shooting because anyone could have been there. This is a typical suburban uh, neighborhood in this bucolic mountain town of Aurora, Colorado. 
it was gorgeous, planned out community downtown shopping center. I've been to this place a number of times and like 350,000 residents there. The typical home is $400,000. It's a very nice area. So wrong place, wrong time. It can happen to anyone. These incidents, and we've seen it time and time again, happen really quickly. So this one you said was two and a half minutes and it was over. How do people even have time to process that? Or do they when they're in that theatre? Do they even know what's going on? No, I think that was part of the challenge here. And I think you'll pick up some of that with the calls that you'll hear. This happened in the very first minutes of the movie and how movie premieres are and action movies, very loud. And actually some of the people who were interviewed who were in the theater said they, they actually thought it was maybe part of the movie premiere because, you know, it's a premiere. Yeah. You know what they might expect. So it's happened two and a half minutes later. They're still processing what's happened. They don't know if the killer's still at large. Surely people are just like running for their lives. Yeah. How do people stop to ring 911? What is the delay between the incident and the first calls coming in? That's a great question. I've never been asked that question before, Sarah. See, what a great interview. <laughs> Some people... It, they never call emergency. It, it, it just doesn't process. They feel like they don't know what they could say that would be helpful, or they're worried about calling and providing the wrong information. So that's what happens to some. And of course, uh, my answer to that is a longtime law enforcement officer is you don't have a wrong answer. You have whatever information you have. We want you to call. We want everybody who can call to call and provide what information they can. And I know that uh, the dispatchers that are hearing this right now are saying, no, wait, but I mean, I'm just kidding because we do want all the information. <laughs> That's how we synthesize it, right? Because the information that comes in is conflicting, but we get descriptions of people and time and it helps the dispatchers who are incredibly talented piece together very quickly what's going on. Imagine if we get one call from a movie theater that says, I think I hear something it might be fireworks, but imagine if we get 20 calls and one right. is from in the theater and one is from outside the theater. And when the dispatchers get more than one call, that helps them to understand the gravity of the situation and the parameters of the situation, the scope of it. So it's very important to get those calls. And some calls are more helpful than others. Some people call and they just can't even say words and the dispatchers are just doing their best to get what they can out of them and provide them moral and mental health support at that moment just to make sure that they're they're personally okay. And that's equally important job that they have to do, not just take information and relay it to first responders. Can I just ask a stupid question? And I know you're going to say there's no such thing as a stupid... (laughs) You're going to say that. But you wait. I've got one lined right up for you. So when it comes into a dispatch place, there's going to be more than one 911 dispatcher in that room. So how do they communicate that they're all getting a similar call in from an incident like this? You're right. A lot of times you may have a smaller police department uh, or law enforcement agency, and it has only a handful of people who work together. But I worked in the FBI's Washington, D.C. field office for a while. So it'd be like the police department. Even in our dispatch office there in the Washington, D.C. field office, you know, we have five or six people. They're all sitting right next to each other. They're hearing what each other is saying a little bit. And they understand they get a lot of calls. So dispatch knows, oh, this is a call that's a non-emergency. This is a cat in a tree. And they immediately get the gravity of the situation. Even in this case, you'll hear very quickly, they immediately appreciated that they couldn't even relay all the information going out, but they needed to make sure that they got more police than they initially were going to have because of the gravity of it. And I think they get that by speaking in kind of shortcut to each other because they work together and they know this is going to be a three car call. This is going to be a 10 car call. 
And it's because they're si- actually sitting in close proximity to each other. So they can talk on the line and off the line. What should we be listening out for in the first clip? The first call actually you're going to hear is from the manager of the movie theater who I spoke to at length after this event. And you hear what I consider to be a wonderful call because she says, here's where I'm calling from and here's what's going on. Right. And then you immediately hear the dispatchers call for mutual aid, meaning they're calling other departments to say, we think something is going on that's going to require way more than we can provide in our own first responder. And we want to make sure that we immediately start dispatching people to the scene. And you can hear the dispatchers talking about, here's where to go. Here's the intersection. We'll give you more information later. And then she says to them, here's what's going on. Aurora number one, where is your emergency? I'm at um, Century 16 in Aurora, Colorado. There's gunshots being fired in one of our auditoriums. Okay, what's the one four three zero zero East Alameda Ave in Aurora, Colorado? There's gunshots in number nine. All metro units responding to assist Aurora, please start for Alameda and 225. We will give further directions as soon as we can. Aurora to all metro area agencies. It's very intense. And can I just say, the first thing that strikes me is how bloody calm was that manager with her 911 call? Incredible. Yeah, she was amazing. I said to her, how did you decide to do that? She said, well, I was working as I was every night and somebody came to my office and said they thought there was a disturbance in Theater 9. And I got up from my desk and her office is like, if I could draw a map, you think about your, your family room and your living room and your kitchen. Theater 9, next to it is Theater 8. Next to Theater 8 is her office. The shooting was occurring in Theater 9 facing Theater 8. Some of the bullets actually went through the walls of Theater 8. So she started from her office to go to Theater 9. And she said, I immediately realized that was gun- the sound of gunshots. So I wow. turned around and went back. And I said, well, did you leave the theater? And she said, oh, no, I went back to my office to call 911. That's just mind blowing. She had such a sense of responsibility. And she knew she had hundreds of patrons in the theater and she felt a responsibility to them. So she went back to her office. I've never heard such a calm 911 call where she said, here's where I am. Here's the address. Here's what's going on. There's shooting going on in theater nine. She knew exactly where it was. So the first call they got really informed them how serious the situation was. And I think also, if you can hear when you talk about calm, can you hear the calmness of the dispatchers? And they have this steady, methodic way that they speak, and they're calling all the regional agencies. And do you notice immediately every regional agency, their 911 dispatchers called in? You could hear them yeah. in Denver, such and such. And those are all the other dispatchers from all the other surrounding towns who immediately call in, ping, ping. And then she says, here's what's going on. We, we have an active shooter. We need everybody to go. The other thing that we spoke about in the Navy Yard episode that we recorded previously was knowing your location. Like she just straight onto it. I hope they gave her a promotion because bloody hell she deserves it. But is she an anomaly? 
How often would you get a calm, collected 911 call like that? I think it's a variety. And I think dispatchers would say we get from hysteria to calm. I mean, I've called in a 911. I'm off duty. I'm driving by. I did it a couple months ago. I drive by the scene and I see a man laying on the ground at a car accident and two people outside of their cars, but there's a man laying on the ground next to the car. That's pretty serious. So I stop my car. I say, hey, are you guys okay? Have you talked to emergency? Oh, no, we, we haven't called anybody. I'm like, there's a guy on the ground. I think we should call an ambulance. Oh, well, okay. So I'm the bystander. So mm. I'm calling. So I call calmly, look for my street signs and say, hi, I'm at the corner <laughs> of X and Y. And um, there's a car accident here. I'm not involved in it, but there's a man laying next to the car who rolled out of one of the cars. So I think we need some assistance. I'm like the calm bystander calling. She was the engaged bystander. She was not a bystander at all, right? She was the engaged party and she was very calm. So sometimes they're calm, but a lot of times they're a lot uh, more spirited, shall we say. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True Crime Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while. First in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Let's go back now. The police have been alerted. You can hear the different departments responding on that call. People are shot at the theatre and presumably confused, fleeing from other theatres and not knowing what they are fleeing from or what has happened. So mass panic. We're talking mass panic, aren't we? It's a very hectic situation. Immediately, Mm -hmm. everybody's moving, everybody's running, everybody's screaming, and nobody really knows where to go or what to do. Not uncommon. Right. So what happens in the immediate aftermath of the shooting and the emergency phone calls coming in? 
Well, the 911 calls that were released really help us to appreciate the chaos of it. And we've got another series of clips that I think are helpful to understand the chaos. And let me just explain a little bit so you know what you're going to hear, because it's a number of clips together. First, I told you that there was tear gas in the room they were trying to respond to. So you can hear the police officers looking for gas masks for assistance. Um, And then you can hear the confusion and the people who are calling in they're providing information that's sometimes conflicting. And if you listen carefully, we know in this case, we had a single shooter, right? That the police arrested, because I told you that, out at the back of the theater. But you'll hear uh, one of the people who calls in and say, they came in and did this. They escaped through the lobby. And so police are getting conflicting information. And you'll hear the lieutenant in charge talk about that and the concerns that he had as he tried to control the situation, including having a subject with a gas mask and a car in, behind the theater when they arrested him. Any units that can bring gas masks to theater nine. Again, we need gas masks. chilling and utter chaos all at once, isn't it? Yeah, that you can hear how chaotic it is. And remember, we had uh, 12 people killed in the theater, 58, nearly actually five dozen injured. And so they were hundreds of people in the theater, right? And a lot of craziness. And so that chaos is something that you just have to deal with especially there's just so many different parts of, you can hear from the clips, the confusion over gas masks, for instance. Yeah. The other thing I was going to ask is time. Time's always interesting in these because it sounds like that all happens really rapidly, but how long actually was it before the killer was caught? Almost immediately, within a few minutes. Right. That's amazing, isn't it? The response time. Yeah, the police officers responded uh, behind, and you can hear that Lieutenant uh, Mike Daly, that's who you hear, he's retired now, he's a great guy, and that's that main voice that you hear, Mike Daly. He's the one who is coordinating from the front of the theater. He's the one of the first responding, and he begins triaging and doing what we call incident command to make decisions about 
how to set a perimeter and where to send cars. And he's the one who says, get some gas masks. And he's the one who says, I want that back lot cleared. That's his voice. And he's the one who's coordinating the chaos, we would call it. But the types of things that they had to deal with at the time, like the gas masks, a great example. In the UK, fire and police train with those gas masks and law enforcement is, is trained to use the fire equipment that belongs to the fire department. But in the United States, police officers aren't trained with gas masks regularly the way your guys are. And that's a hole in our training, I think, that police departments are beginning to clean up. But fire equipment is expensive, so they're not trained in it. You could also hear at the end that conflicting information of, is there only one suspect or not? How do they know they're safe? Well, I said this for the public, it may sound confusing and chaotic, and you don't really know if you're safe. And I think there's no way in an emergency situation to convey to the people there, you guys are okay, we've got the scene under control. But for law enforcement, the chaos, it's handled surprisingly well. It's what we call organized chaos in law enforcement. One of the things that you have to learn as a commander is to push through the chaos until the calm. So you make decisions and you act until you go from a chaotic, hysterical environment into an organized chaos and then into an organized event. And that's pretty much what law enforcement does all the time. So you may not know that there's organization going on, but when you hear Mike Daly talking about it, he was the head of their SWAT team at the time. And so very skilled, very talented. You can hear in his voice how he is coordinating and getting everything organized on the scene. You can hear that through the radio calls. So you've got a whole lot of injured people. Nothing good has happened in that theater. Place full of panic. It's a very time-sensitive situation. How does that all play out? Obviously, the first thing that law enforcement and any first responders concerned about is health and safety of the people there. So here, as it turns out, they did arrest the subject immediately behind the building. But the first thing that you're concerned about in any situation is the safety of everybody around. And so do you have a live shooter who's moving around? And in this case, they knew within a few minutes, like three minutes, they didn't have a live shooter around. They had a a live shooter in custody, right? So then when you take your shooter out of custody, and they didn't know if there was more than one shooter, even though the subject told them he was the only shooter. It's not like you're going to believe that guy, right? So you don't really know. So law enforcement's there. They're looking for another potential shooter. They're looking for something that you hear Mike Daly say, secondary devices. He's worried that there's a bomb in this guy's car. And that becomes relevant later in our discussion. That's another concern that they have. And he has to think about the safety of the people around if there's a bomb in a car. That's why he said, I want this whole lot cleared. And then the next thing you're doing is taking care of the wounded. How are we going to triage the wounded? So what they did in this case is Daly, very skilled, stayed outside. He had members of his own department who were very skilled, including a SWAT medic. And he sent a couple of officers inside and he stayed outside to coordinate what was going on outside and in the front of the building, which was chaos, a thousand people on the parking lot. And then he sent a couple of people inside to triage the wounded in theater eight, theater nine, any place where there were still people inside. So that's part of how he managed it, divide and conquer. He had people inside who were making the decisions about, can this person be transported by ambulance? And then what they started to do was to say, okay, let's get these people out of the theater who are gravely wounded. Let's get them in an ambulance. Let's get them to hospitals. So that was the next step. There were, think about it, almost 60 people injured, 12 dead. So a lot of people injured inside 
to make decisions on. And people stayed inside with their friends who were there who were shot. You can hear that one of the first calls that we listened to, the help call, that she was still in the theater when she made that call. I wanted to play just another little series of clips because I think that in this situation, think about a movie theater. A theater clears out more than a thousand people who clear out and they're all over the pavement in front. Lieutenant Daly actually doesn't have an ambulance and he brings his car up to the front and he says, just put this person in my car and take him to the hospital. And that's because he just sees how quickly you can bleed out. So we want to get those people to the hospital so that they can stop the bleeding. But there was no ambulance to be had. So that was the first challenge. And there were all these people in the parking lot. But then it becomes not a challenge. It becomes an impossibility. We have so many wounded. And I wanted to just play how it evolves Mm -hmm. from initially the police are going to respond and they call for ambulances. And then they're looking for ambulances from neighboring communities. And then they're not really certain whether they can get enough ambulances. And that's pretty clear. And then you hear an officer call in and he knew that they weren't going to have enough. And it wasn't police protocol to ever put a wounded uh, victim into a car. And they made a decision to start transporting police officers in a triage line out the back of the movie theater. And listen to these clips just to see how that evolves. In their words, you can hear the concern increasing. Aurora, this is Englewood on Metronet. That's Aurora, go ahead. We were advised that you might need, need some more medic units. Can you confirm? Englewood, anything you have, we would much appreciate it. Lincoln 25, I need rescue the stage in the, in the uh, west parking lot. I need at least three or four ambulances brought in here. Everybody can stage in the west parking lot. hospitals, notify all the hospitals were coming in. So how many people were transported by the police that day? Yeah, exactly. Notify all the hospitals. There were five area hospitals very close by and all of them received patients, including a children's hospital. So in all, there were 27 individuals taken by police to the hospital, which is extraordinary. 27 people who were thrown into police cars, some of them more than one person into a car. And, And then there were another 20 taken by ambulance. And then there were 16 who other people transported in. So 20 by ambulance, 27 by police uh, department. So that's really extraordinary. And also Mm, of those 27, they all survived. Wow. And if the police hadn't acted out of what would normally be their protocol, it would have been a very different situation, wouldn't it? I think so, for sure. This, the 27 who were transported were really the, some of the most seriously injured individuals in the theater. And the footage of the hospital ambulance bays with these police cars coming in is extraordinary because you see them pull in and you see them pull a body out, a person out, throw them on a gurney. The hospitals didn't know these calls were coming. You heard what the caller said. Just yeah. notify every hospital that we're coming in. 
the fact that all those people survived, it was a win in a horrible situation. The police are very proud of themselves for that result, and they should be. I agree. Okay, so it's Sunday, January 19th. 19th. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard. I opened the door. There was a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz? And I said, oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai. And then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. What struck you about this particular incident as the most significant piece of information that you'd like to share with the public? Well, I guess I would say I I heard some scary 911 tapes, some that we didn't play here. I don't want to re-victimize anybody. Some of those 911 tapes, though, are people who didn't know how to do CPR. They didn't understand how to help somebody who was injured, which really you could be in a car accident and that could happen. You could be hiking and have somebody fall and that could happen. It was clear that some of the people didn't know how to do CPR. I mean, it was not a question. They just didn't know what they were doing. The dispatchers in the chaos were trying to walk them through it. And the movie actually was still playing because movies are digital. So they're not real to real where you would just run up to the booth and stop the movie. And in this case, the controls for the movie theater weren't even in the same state. So it was very hectic at the time. And I think that I want to encourage our listeners to really get their first aid tool kits in their hands, get that idea that how are they going to help somebody who's bleeding? You're your best advocate. Police had 1,400 people in the parking lot, 400 of them in that theater alone. So maybe you could help them out. There's always a way to take care of people who have bleeding wounds. If there's a hole in the chest that might be from a gunshot wound or a puncture wound, if that goes into your lungs, if you can cut that airway off, even just by putting a piece of plastic over that so that air can't be sucked into the body cavity, you could save somebody's life. Well, that is amazing information. Let's just be technical here. If you've got a gunshot going through, both sides need to stop the air going in? Right, right. Okay. Yeah, definitely something like a plastic bag, even if that's what it takes. If it's bleeding, pressure and try to stop the bleeding, right? Pressure till it hurts, baby. (laughs) And, And it's really important because people don't want to hurt, but actually it's key to put the right amount of pressure on, isn't it? Right. You don't want to hurt the person you're with. Well, what you're doing is saving their life. So that's okay. So let's talk about the actual movie theater because that's a business. And I've learned from your clever self that most of these shootings actually occur in businesses. Isn't that right? They do. Most shootings do occur in businesses. And even though you hear about schools and you hear about religious buildings and things like that. It's really businesses where the biggest problems are. And even though sometimes we talk about inside of a building, really a lot of these types of shootings might start even outside of a building. You have somebody who walks into a building shooting or they start in the parking lot. So they spill over from a parking lot into a shopping mall. Even though we've seen a lot of shootings that are more individualistic and they're more targeted at hair salons or warehouses or office buildings. 
So tire stores, those kinds of places where people work. And what did this business in particular learn from this shooting? Well, I think that the movie theater did make adjustments. This is a big, huge company in the United States that has movie theaters all over the country. And they set into immediate protocols. And this is what I would ask every company to do. Every person who's working in an office, think about the protocols that are in place already for locked doors. I think we've talked about locked doors before about the value of having doors that are locked so that people can't just stroll in through them. We are all conscious often of keeping our front door locked. And so many people who are car owners, they're so worried about keeping their car door locked and then they leave their house unlocked. Come on. In businesses, we see a lot of businesses' back doors are unlocked. And that's what occurred here in the movie theater. Even though there was a pop-out door and this uh, shooter went out the door and blocked the door and came back in, Now the movie theater has a protocol. Even when I went back to that theater to shoot a documentary, I said to the manager, can we come through that door? And she said, we are not allowed to leave that door open under any circumstance, even to just for you to bring your equipment into the theater. So they set into place all these protocol where they check the doors in all their theaters during the movies, before the movies, after the movies, to make sure that nobody could get in and out where they shouldn't be coming in and out. Right. So making sure that you've got sound security processes in place, like adding in the doors, that's not something that's expensive to do. That's just adding one more thing to a staff's checklist, isn't it? It Lock the doors. That's it. And I think there's a ton of stuff that would make you feel safer. Let me ask you, would you go to a movie theater after hearing this story? Well, it's funny you say that because after the Paris attack back in, I think it was 2015, we had tickets booked to go to Paris that following week and uh, we had to weigh that up, whether we'd be safe going back to that environment. We weren't going back into the theatre, but we were going into a place that had just had an attack. And uh, yeah, it was a really hard one. We did end up going because maybe naively, I thought to myself, is that not the safest place to go now that people are going to be on high alert? Being blissfully naive again, maybe. I don't know. You tell me. No, I think, you know what, Sarah, I think that was a good call on your part. Uh, I mean, you don't want to not go anyplace uh, your whole life, but I think you're right. When something happens, then everybody is on high alert for security. And I see that pretty routinely in the Bataclan. Definitely that shooting stunned the world, just like this movie theater shooting stunned the world. It was like our Holocaust shooting. There were things that that really occur where people recreate. And that's what Bataclan was, right? It leaves us all questioning if we go to a music festival or if we go to a night at the opera, if we go to a theater, what safety precautions should we take? And and how many safety precautions should they take, right? Because businesses have to weigh, how inviting is it for you to have to go through a magnetometer like you would at the airport in order to go see a show? Right. And where do you draw the line? There was the shoe bombing and we all ended up taking our shoes off every time we went through security. I haven't done that in a while. Are they still doing that in the US? They are. I just flew not too long ago. I took my shoes off like a good, uh, dutiful citizen. But I think this is where for businesses, they constantly have to weigh this issue about how much do we want to impose security on people and make them be thinking about security instead of being entertained which is the whole point of somebody wanting to come in. And so businesses have defaulted to somewhat of a risk analysis and say, well, it's a lower risk that it's really going to happen and we want to have an enjoyable event when they come. And so I would say from the patron standpoint, this is where perspective comes in. And maybe that's one of the messages about this particular episode is for sanity's sake, go back to the frequency of these situations as compared to the infrequency. This is a very unusual circumstance. In the US, we have like 60,000 theaters in the United States or something like that. It's just like there's 140,000 kindergarten 
through 12th grade schools in the United States, how likely is it that there's going to be another Sandy Hook, the 140,000 schools, right? So you have to weigh it and say, how often does this really happen in a movie theater? The fact that I can isolate one in a movie theater tells you how often it happens. I don't have a hundred of those Mm -hmm. that have occurred in the United States. Not that I'm encouraging anybody to get to increase the number of those, but they are far and few between. And, And as I've often said, you're more likely to be killed at home by a firearm than you are out at a school or in business. So you have to take put a little perspective to it. When I did spend time with the theater manager, she said that they made these changes. She knew she stayed calm. She just knew that this was an unusual circumstance. She needed to respond the way that she did. And they made those changes that we talked about. But I think that maybe the takeaway here for me is what the businesses did not do. Security itself is very expensive. They did not create prison systems and magnetometers and fences and searches of shoes and purses. And most of the places here in the United States don't still don't do that. And I think most around the world, they still don't do that. They want people to come and they want to enjoy a recreation uh, or entertainment evening and not be overwhelmed by the security aspects of it. I like that perspective, my takeaway for the day. What about the police, though? What were the lessons for them after this situation? That's one of the reasons why I did this. I worked on a documentary for the FBI where I did spend time out there, uh, several days out there with the police, because I think they did learn a lot. And they were very circumspect and very smart about it. They did a fantastic job responding, but first responders know they can always do better if they look back and see what they could have done. So I think there were some good lessons that I remember from my conversations with them. One of the first ones that Aurora learned is that the police and fire did not have direct communication with each other on the scene for nearly an hour. It was like 50 minutes, 5-0, 50 minutes. And that added to the confusion about getting ambulance assistance. And then because of that, Aurora made changes. This is how dedicated and fantastic this area is. They built a new training facility for their police officers so they could be better trained, right? They built it as a police and fire training facility. So, yeah, so the police and the fire recruits train together and they learn from the very beginning how each other's jobs work. And you heard all the radio traffic. Fire has a different radio traffic system. And in Aurora, that's that's why they didn't talk together. So now in Aurora, they have common channels. So before the fire department even gets there, they're listening to the police channels. And before the police even get there, they're listening to the fire channels. And they know what each other might need at the time. So that was like one huge thing that they learned. And then they learned practical things like we all know, and if you don't know, in an emergency, you have a better chance of getting a text message through to somebody than a phone call through to somebody once the phone lines jam. But in the case of the departments, their phone lines were so busy, police were so busy calling them that they could never actually place a call on any of their cell phones at the scene. And here's a fantastic little thing. They, one of their comms people said to me when I interviewed her afterwards, she's like, if I had just put do not disturb on my call phone, I would have been able to use it. Oh, that's a good tip. Such a simple thing. So she learned simple things like that. She also learned that she had to have backup cell phones that nobody had the numbers for so that she could just use them just to call her own departments. I think they learned to trust their subordinates too. The idea that uh, Daly said, you do what you need to do. Send your people. Daly was a senior ranking guy out there, but he didn't go into the theater to coordinate it. He coordinated from out in front. He sent people inside and said, you guys go in and make the best decisions you can. And they trusted that they had trained their people right and that the subordinates would make the decisions, including throwing people in cars, including what what hospital to take those people to. So even uh, things like looking for the bombs, 
looking for the booby traps. The shooter's whole apartment was booby trapped and wired up uh, with bombs. So uh, Stop. Hold on. Back that up. His apartment was booby trapped. You haven't even touched on that. Uh, was there anyone injured? No, uh, but I'll say no because of the determination of the departments. Um, How did they know that it was booby-trapped? I think this is another protocol thing for law enforcement, for first responders. Now, we, if we know that a subject, uh, we, we know where a subject's car is or we know their home, we're going to go to those locations to search for evidence and to search for answers. And in this case, they found the subject's address. They went to the subject's apartment. So you can't just go into somebody's house because somebody was shooting. Here in the United States, you still have to get a search warrant. And Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, come on. No, you still have to get, you still have to, you can't just barge into something. You don't know whose house it is, right? And, uh, oh, I suppose there might be other people in the house. That's exactly. And okay. privacy rights it into, we're just not going to let, we're not going to let you be the counsel for our police department. That's know, my husband, clearly. We obviously had to go over there. I mean, there are certainly uh, certain exceptions, but there's no reason to believe that there was somebody inside who was injured or whatever. And, but we're always cautious and we never know. And so first, uh, try to look inside. And we were able to see, again, more camera footage that is fascinating to see. And what happened is we learned through various means that the subject had built what looks like a, a cartoon. It built these balls filled with a substance to blow his apartment building up. He wanted, he didn't want just his apartment to blow up. He wanted oh. to blow the building up. Wow. Okay. And I think he had done some things that he thought might get somebody to come to the, his apartment and open the door. And this would be done before his movie theater shooting. So all the responders, fire and police, would be over at his building that would have exploded. And it would have taken longer for them to get to the movie theater. But that didn't happen. Yeah, best laid plans. That didn't happen. And then once the first responders discovered that his apartment might be booby trapped, then they went methodically through a process. And actually, you can see photographs of... uh, bomb experts were climbing through windows and they waited overnight till the daylight came so that they could dismantle one by one the bombs inside of his apartment because they had to clear the building, of course, but these were people's homes. And um, this was in a little bit of a, a rougher area and he was willing to take a whole building down and all those innocent people too. And that kind of made law enforcement mad. And they were like, he's not taking the building down. We're not letting him take the building down, even if they'd cleared the building, right? So they knew that there would be loss of life. They knew that it was also the lives of the people in those buildings were in the content of those apartments. And and they said, we're not letting him win and take this building down. God. One thing that we haven't actually addressed is, did he just give himself up? Was he waiting to be arrested? I think essentially, yes. And that may sound shocking, it, it is. To some people. Including, <laughs> Me. Including Sarah Ferris. <laughs> it's not as uncommon as you might think it is. I've spent, obviously, a long time, a decade or more, researching and working on these kinds of incidents. And I find that sometimes the shooters think it through once they start pulling the trigger, but they don't necessarily think it through afterwards. And so a lot of times, some of the thinking through is, and I'm going to die at the scene which we have 30, 40, 50% of them die at the scene, depending on how we calculate the numbers, but a clean, maybe 40% of them. And so those people aren't really planning on leaving. And then there are others who plan and they might plan to, you know, then hop in their car and get away. But a lot of times we see shooters who even like in a school shooting, we'll see a high school kid and he'll shoot, but maybe he'll leave the building, but then he's tackled a block later by two school administrators who follow him. 
So people don't often, I think, think through that part of the plan because it's a difficult plan to begin with. Nobody's a five-year-old thinking, oh, I'm going to grow up and be a mass murderer, right? So it's a process that they get themselves to the point where they want to do this and they think they have to do this or they need to do this or whatever the circumstances are. And so each step is a process in targeted violence where they plan this pathway to the violence and the pathway really gets them to the violent act more than it gets them after the violent act. And I, I see that a lot and that's more anecdotal and not statistical, but this is a typical situation where that does occur, where somebody the shooting occurs and then he steps outside, but then he's like, okay. And, and then the police are there and he doesn't resist arrest right. or anything. He thought he was going to be arrested, I think, based on some other things we'll talk about, I think. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. If you've listened to the show before, you'll know that we talk about the killer's background. And as usual, we won't be wasting any oxygen on the scumbag's name because this section isn't even really about the killers. It's about you, our wonderful listeners, and me, and how we can play a part in preventing these crimes from even getting off the ground, really. In fact, would I be right in saying, Catherine, that we are the first line of defense even before the police? Absolutely. Absolutely. You are absolutely the first line of defense. You, every listener here, I'll just give you an example here in the United States. We have maybe a million versions of law enforcement here in the United States, and we have 400 million people. So who is going to be the one to see? Who's going to be one to see? It's going to be us. And that's what you have to remember. That's the empowerment part. Know that we are 
the ones who can see something and say something. Yeah. So I've got my pen and paper at the ready as usual. And if you're listening, you can do the same. I'm going to make a note of the red flags that Catherine's going to throw out to me. Sometimes she throws in a few red herrings. While we're listening, we're just going to be looking out for pinch points along the way where somebody may have had the opportunity to see something and say something and ask ourselves, would you have made that call? Because oftentimes, as we've learned over the episodes, I, I wouldn't have known to make that call. Okay. So remembering that targeted violence is a planned event. So planning and preparation go on for targeted violence. So if you listen closely, you might be able to hear some details. So this killer was raised in California. He took piano lessons. He played trumpet. He ran sports. He loved his little sister. His parents moved him and the family to a smaller area. And they moved to, from the Carmel Valley into San Diego when he was 11. During his trial, there was some information that came out that maybe at 11, he uh, attempted suicide by trying to cut his wrist with cardboard while he was in the car on the trip. So maybe some tension over moving. But he was a good student. He was very smart, like his parents. He was in the top 1% of his uh, class that graduated from the University of California, Riverside. He got his bachelor's degree in the year before the shooting. He was enrolled in a uh, doctoral program at the University of Colorado, but just shortly before the shooting, he dropped out. He had a girlfriend during that year. He had different girlfriends before, a handful of them. And about nine months before the shooting, he started to go out with somebody. He spoke freely by text with her about wanting to kill people. She testified that she told him to get some help. He did get help. He was on some medications. In the few months before the shooting, he received a very large number of shipments at his apartment. Explainable when you consider that he came in with ammunition and guns and magazines and stuff. And also, if you think about what I told you before about it, his home was strewn with these strung together bombs made with different things. And because we saw him after the shooting, he was interviewed by psychiatrists, psychologists, law enforcement, his attorneys, there was trial. We have more information about, for instance, why he picked the theater and not the airport, why he decided to shoot people instead of doing a chemical assault and things like that. And can you say why that was? Oh, yeah. He decided that the theater had less security. The airport would have more security, for instance. That makes sense. Yeah. Right. And, and that's true. And that kind of goes back to how much security do you provide in any given situation? Well, airports after 9-11 here in the United States, where we had the, the terrible situation occur in 9-11 in 2001 with the planes hijacked, we made massive changes to security here that were then, of course, rippled all over the world. Here, no massive changes to movie theaters, right? So he knew that even though there are shootings in schools, it wouldn't be as much. He thought about doing like a chemical assault, but he was concerned that he might hurt, harm himself, like blow himself up. Sometimes we have bombers who actually blow themselves up, right? And we find out that they were going to bomb someplace. We find out after they blow themselves up in their apartment. Right. I think the one thing that's jumping out at me is uh, leakage, the word that you've taught me and we've spoken about before. Give us a little rundown for those who don't know what leakage is. Oh, sure, Helicopter sure. view. So leakage is when somebody tells you something, even directly. We've heard many instances where a shooter or person committing targeted violence, not just shootings, tells somebody else, I'm going to do this. Right. And that's what we've seen here, right? Because he's actually said that to his girlfriend at one stage. A lot of times, though, people don't believe the leakage. They say he's never been violent. He just talking. 
You might recall we had another instance where we had a, an individual who left home and said, I'm going to hunt humans. I do. I do remember that. What kind of leakage is that? Yeah. What kind of leakage is that? No phone call. It is that thing. Words haven't been backed up by action in the past. So it's very hard to make that leap, isn't it? From somebody saying something and you then reporting it on just something that somebody said. And this guy, he's got no past history of violence or anything like that. So you're going to feel a a bit off perhaps reporting that, right? I do think that's the challenge, right? The challenge for everybody to the hurdle that everybody really has to get over is the idea that I'm going to make a call to a school administrator or counselor, uh, to a business, to employee, to the HR department, to the police department, to the mental health people and say, hey, this guy is saying these things. And when people don't want to make that call, they're not making it because they're concerned that they're going to get a person in trouble. And that's a very common phrase I hear from people. I'm gonna, I don't want to get him in trouble. He's never done anything bad before. But violence does escalate. You look at the research on serial killers. You look at the research on other types of killings. They start out injuring animals, and then they move on to people. They start out, a, a, a domestic violence situation starts out with pushing somebody, and then they punch somebody, and then they hit somebody, and then they break an arm, and then somebody's face goes into a wall. It's an escalation. And a violence is an escalation because the, the person gets away with it. So sometimes they say something and you think, oh, well, like he hasn't done that before. But, you know, yeah, no kidding. Somebody hadn't done it before until the first time they did it. Yeah, we can't that's all be, a good point. We can't all be looking for serial killers. Right? No, and I think that the thing that I've learned over these episodes is that I, it's above my pay grade to even know. So reach out for the help at that point and make it someone else's problem that's got the skills to deal with it. Yeah, I love that. I love that philosophy because I, I love that you've learned that and that we share that with our listeners because crime happens, right? I mean, this idea of doing a true crime podcast is because we know that crime happens. And part of the reason that people, I think, are interested in reading and listening to true crime, why I am interested in, in listening to true crime and reading about it is because I don't understand it. I don't understand how somebody can do that. That's exactly it. I can't get my head around how people can do it. Knowledge is power. So you want to almost have control of understanding why it happens in the first place. So you feel like you've got some control of the action actually happening. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So here it is above your pay grade, right? You don't understand. I love that you have that phrase over there and we have that phrase here. I feel bonded right now. But it is uh, above all of our pay grades to think that we as one person can know one fact and that we're going to understand how somebody else's mind is working in some other town, in some other home, in some other business. Don't worry about sharing it because you want others who are taking your call to have that piece of information so that they can better gauge whether or not somebody is a concern or a threat, not even just a threat to other people, but a threat to themselves. Remember that many of the behaviors of concern that we look for in people who commit targeted violence are the same behaviors of concern for people who commit suicide. So save a life, maybe somebody who you know and love. I feel you've probably got more history to share with me about our killer. Well, I guess I just wanted to add that he legally bought the weapons that he used, which for our listeners might not surprise them. When we're talking about in the United States, he uh, had two handguns. He legally bought two handguns, a semi-automatic rifle and a shotgun. He actually physically couldn't hardly carry it in with him, right? But just to be clear in Colorado, 
about 45% of people in the state do own a gun, some version of it. I mean, it's not unusual to have a gun. So Okay. Guns, guns, bloody guns. We always end up coming back to the guns. But can I just say on this one, yes. that was one of the other things that I picked up. He'd been for mental health assistance and somewhere in the system, somebody at that point is supposed to notify the higher ups and that should be on his system to then not be able to legally purchase guns. Have I got that completely wrong? You really don't. It's just that it's a little squishy, uh, which is I like the legal term, right? Mm -hmm. That's my legal term as a lawyer. I'm going to say it's a little squishy. There is a provision. So in the United States, in order to be able to purchase a weapon legally, you have to have a background check run through a NICS check, which I won't give you the details. We'll go into that another time. And part of the background checks to determine whether or not somebody has a criteria that eliminates them from being able to purchase a weapon. And many of those things are things that you would expect, like somebody who's a prior felon, somebody who's been adjudicated to be incompetent, literally adjudicated to be incompetent, not incompetent like you're an incompetent podcaster, Catherine. Um, (laughs) I thought you were going to say that to me. (laughs) um, But you know, you're legally incompetent to, to take care of your own finances, things like that. And so there is a category also for mental health. And so um, not getting into the weeds uh, too much on that at, at this episode, the category in mental health requires that reporting be done by the states and by certain facilities to the national system that's run by the FBI. And there are certain criteria, and a lot of the states have uh, different criteria. We have a lot more reporting than we did years ago of people who have mental health issues. Uh, but these aren't people who have mental health treatment. So let me be clear. This isn't right. mental health treatment for anxiety, and suddenly you're in a background check system with the federal government. Okay, so It's when there's certain adjudications, there's certain things that occur. And one of those, for example, is if you have been adjudicated to be committed to a facility for treatment. So a judge finds that you have maybe a violence issue, and we think that there's a violence issue and mental health plays into it. And the judge says, you need to go for inpatient or even outpatient mental health care that's ordered by the judge. That's an example of something that could, which is the critical word, could require or could result in a reporting to the next system. Right. And that makes sense in this case, doesn't it then? Because it doesn't sound like he got to that level with his mental health. Well, and I'll say that a lot of times those reportings don't even occur, right? So that's a, that is a big hole in the U.S. check system that we're aware of. But definitely we learned at his trial, for instance, that at his preliminary hearing, his attorney postulated that he was schizophrenic and that he was depressed over the breakup of this girlfriend and he was stressed over his PhD program and that's why he dropped out. And she even said, and again, this was just postulating, maybe he just had a brain chemistry that worsened with this disease that he had. One of the people who testified at trial said he was taking medication for depression, anxiety. How many people are doing that? Half the world, it seems like sometimes, right? A Mm -hmm. social worker did testify that uh, she didn't think that he was dangerous. She was more concerned about his thoughts of... (laughs) of killing people, the fact that she would testify to that. Leakage. Right. Just saying. But she said, I think he was just depressed. That's what she testified to. And I'm not racking a social worker about that. Racking, that's a that's a Midwest, upper Midwest term for <laughs> criticizing. Just, just add it to the there. vocab. Yeah, exactly. I'm not racking on the social worker. I'm just saying that she's doing the job that she could at the time. And that's what she said. But leakage, you're right. A trial, they showed a, they showed a filmed interview of him. And he was with a state psychiatrist. Uh, He told the doctor he had this on-again, off-again relationship with his girlfriend, and that contributed to his violent depression and his violence intent. But So I'll tell you here, he was pleading insanity 
at this trial. So that's a different, that's a different matter. Okay. What he was trying to prove. You mentioned before about serial killers having those tales of perhaps the the cruelty to animals and things like that. And there's those progression of violence, the escalating steps along the way. Mm -hmm. In this case, we've seen an attempted suicide early on. Is there any research to link that as one of the, the markers? Is there any link between the violent attempt of suicide escalating into the violent act of ending other people's lives? Well, I'm not a behavioral expert. I think what you see when it comes to attempted suicide and things like that is is just the idea that somebody is has unresolved issues that they're trying to work through, whether that's anxiety, depression. And sometimes what we see uh, here in my research in the States is that, so not extending this to violence that might be uh, targeted violence, that's terrorist violence, but that's ideological violence. But this type of violence, somebody who commits violence, the men generally, that's our only demographic that actually ties to these incidents, is the men may want to kill themselves, but they're going to take others with them. And women are, are generally not. So women violence internal, men violence external, sort of. It's a generalization. So somebody who is frustrated and struggling with life and what should they do, that is part of what we begin to see, anxiety, depression, thoughts of suicide, and it grows. It's the anxiety that grows, and then anxiety, depression, anger. And then the anger is where targeted violence comes into play because somebody's angry that the world has not helped them to solve these problems of anxiety and depression that are making them want to kill themselves. And the world is at fault. And who is the world? The world is whoever's around them. And that's when we see this outward violence. So there is definitely a tie. We don't have time to go into all of those behaviors of concern that we've seen on each of these episodes. What sticks out to you in his background particularly? I think that in this case, he was very much like a little bit of a person who fell between the cracks. He was on his own, right? And he was in a school program. He dropped out of the school program. He he went out with this woman sometimes and she found him a little like off-putting, particularly talking about killing people. And Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, that would do it for me. But Mm -hmm. a concern that I have is that people who are in their 20s and 30s, average age of the most common mass killer in the United States... 35, 34, those ages. So people who are in their 20s and 30s, they don't really have anybody watching over them. And if you don't have a support structure around you, which is really your friends, your family, and your coworkers who are going to look out for you when you're under duress, then something like this can happen. People around him had to have seen him. Let me tell you something about this guy. He dyed his hair red before the shooting. Right. And he did that he said because he wanted to be remembered and he thought he'd be remembered more if people saw him with red hair when he was arrested. He was arrested with like bright orangey red hair. When you say remembered more, remembered more by the people that he was shooting at, not after the event, do you mean? No, I think after the event. He, He was part of his way of absenting himself from who he really is to who he thought he could become, which is what happens. Sometimes you'll see shooters get methodical about changing their appearance. They might change their hair. They wear certain clothing. They create an image of who they think they should be for this event. And in this case, he decided that he he could be more well-remembered if he had his bright red hair dyed so that people would see him and remember that. So he is looking for a way to get attention, just like a four-year-old who's having a tantrum. I'll say this, you'd intercede if your four-year-old was having a temper tantrum. True, true. Well, time out, off to the naughty step. Tell me about the insanity plea. How did that play out? 
So in the United States, you can plead innocent by reason of insanity. It's not a super common thing that occurs, but it's a burden on the state then to prove that you're not. So it's a hard barrier to get to. How do you prove somebody's not insane? And how they prove that was by the fact that he methodically chose his location, that he talked to his girlfriend about the violence, that he chose to dye his hair ahead of time. He Mm -hmm. picked certain things. He methodically set up his apartment to blow it up. He drove to there. He bought his guns legally. It was a big method of so he was in his right mind as he did all those things. And he thought through how to commit this terrible act of violence. So we don't usually have a trial where we get a chance to see those results. So that's nice that the victims had the opportunities to hear the, the details of it. But interesting that he played the insanity, Catherine, and then he got that incredibly long sentence, didn't he, in the end? I think it 3, really shows. Yeah, 3,000 years. I hear people say all the time, nobody does this who isn't crazy. And then they, they just say, oh, he must be crazy. All these people are crazy. But there may be mental health situations that raise a person's situation and and help them to com- commit an act of targeted violence. But they're making the choices to commit an act of targeted violence. And there are millions and millions of people around the world who get mental health care for anxiety and depression, as an example, like this young man did, and they don't commit targeted violence. Really? So, right. men- so mental health care is not a predictive factor for violence. It's not. And some people say, well, look at the people who have mental health problems. No, people who have mental health problems are the ones getting care. They're the ones yeah. who are likely not doing this. It's look at the behaviors of concern and see whether or not you see something where somebody's escalating their behaviors and they have behaviors of concern and they're thinking about committing targeted violence. What were the hard lessons that we learned from the Aurora Theater shooting? Okay, so... I knew you were going to ask me this. It's always a little controversial. I mean, in my head, whether or not I should say this, but I really want to put uh, everybody on the spot and say, uh, just even just for this moment, a lot of people in the theater, as you would expect, froze. Think about where the shooter was. Think about the last time you were in a theater. The shooter was only feet away from some of these people. So scary. Right. But he was very quick. He changed out his guns twice. Right. He started Mm -hmm. with a shotgun. Then he moved to another weapon that had to change magazines and a handgun. And uh, one of his weapons jammed. So I guess I'm wondering for the people who are listening today, would he have managed to get off quite as many shots if you had been there and you had made a decision with the people next to you to maybe rush him and do the fighting part of run, hide, fight? I have to say that. And when I did my initial research for the FBI, 13% of the cases of the 160 incidents that we researched over a 14-year period, in 13% of the cases, an unarmed person stopped the shooter from firing any more bullets. Unarmed people interceded and stopped the shooting. Very brave. Many more than we see armed people shooting. You always hear, if you've got a good guy with a gun. No, here's what we know right now in the United States. An unarmed shooter is more likely to intercede than an armed shooter. And that's, I think, they put it into their mind and they say, I'm not going to let that happen. What were the incredible moments of humanity, the moments of resilience, bravery and courage that we saw at the Aurora Theatre? Well, I think my shout out would go to the police officers who were in the theatre. That theatre had tear gas in it and there was a blaring movie in their ears 
and they stuck to it and they did their jobs. They triaged dozens of people who were shot, people who were hysterical, as you can imagine, and they developed their own makeshift triage and they managed to get people in and out of that theater as they needed to and transported 27 people who all survived. Pretty incredible. Uh, That's unbelievable. 27 lives they saved just with that quick thinking action. Incredible. What would be the final thought for the day that you'd like to leave us with, Catherine? I would say that it's helpful to remember that you are in charge of you. Take the opportunity to learn the exits and take the opportunity to learn how to save a life. I keep going back to like a car accident. If it was in a car accident, when you want to save the lives of the people you were with, if somebody was bleeding, if somebody had a heart attack. So take the time to learn those things, those skills that we can all have now. And, and just remember that we're the ones with the power to stop this kind of targeted violence if we see something and say something. I have the great advantage as law enforcement of after the fact, finding out people who did something and then they see the benefit of how they saved lives. And that's an incredible feeling. You Mm -hmm. can't happen any other way. So absolutely, please share and share around the podcast in particular, because I think it's an easy way for people to hear and learn how much power they have to stop the killing. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stop the Killing Stories or Twitter at STK Podcast. Come and join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. All the links are in the show notes. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. Hello? It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect be ready for it morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me emily g thompson author of unsolved child murders unsolved murders cults uncovered and mysteries uncovered 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Each week on Morbidology, I uncover a new true crime case using investigative research combined with source audio. I just snatched it from her. I took it and it's like, I just hit her with it. 
Morbidology is a victim-focused podcast that mostly covers cases that aren't widely documented in mainstream media. I also like to take an in-depth look at any systemic failures which had a part to play in the crime. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology across all podcast platforms. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.